Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly note that this episode contains some adult themes. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Katie Brand and I'm delighted to be joined by an actress who was Oscar nominated for her role in the film Precious. She's since gone on to star in TV shows such as Empire, American Horror Story and The Big C. And Barack Obama told her she was the bomb. So she joins us in the Penguin studio to talk about her new book, This Is Just My Face, Try Not To Stare. It's Gabore Sidibe. Hi. Hello. Hi, Gabore. Welcome to the Penguin podcast. Uh, now, as is traditional on this podcast, we ask all our guests to bring in objects that have inspired their writing. Uh, I know you've brought in a few, uh, so we'll find out what they are uh, in a minute and over the course of the podcast. But let's begin just by uh, trying to get a sense of what the book's about for the mm-hmm. listeners. You've written this book that's a very candid account of growing up and becoming famous and what you convey is this almost extraordinary, unexpected series of events that have taken you from your childhood to now. Uh, And it was a pretty hard childhood and kids were mean to you at school. Your parents divorced after your dad moved uh, another woman into the family home uh, and then and secretly married her. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, he so, secretly married her and then moved her in. It's a whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it really is a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's quite incredible. I mean, and you, you've, you've talked very openly as well about how you've struggled with depression and anxiety over the course of your life. You've even worked in a, a phone sex call centre. Right, uh, the phone sexery. Which I actually found uh, an incredibly inspiring chapter, but we'll talk in, in many ways, <laughs> oh, actually. I'm we'll so we'll glad I inspired you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so I've given up my job. Uh, no, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. <laughs> uh, and then finally, of course, you landed the role of Precious, the eponymous role in this fantastic film. Uh, and your performance was just incredible, absolutely remarkable. It got you an Oscar nomination. I think just blew people away all over the world, actually, and still does. So your story, as as I've just said, you're very open, you're very honest, very candid about it. Was that hard for you to get that down on paper and know that it was going to be out there? A lot of the book I really wrote for myself. Yeah. And it was really an exercise in seeing how honest I could be with myself. If your ankle is broken, you can't get it fixed unless you address the fact that it's broken. Mm-hmm. My emotions are <laughs> broken ankle. And I just thought I have to be as honest as possible in order to really get the work that I want to get out of growing. How did that come about to begin it? Was it like a personal, almost therapeutic act? I wrote an essay, I guess, about confidence and about how embarrassing it is to be asked about my confidence because it's not like, oh, how are you so confident? Mm. It's always like, how are you so Mm -hmm. confident? It's like, how could you possibly be confident? You're like, so this, you're fat, you're this, all of these things. I think Mindy Kaling has said similar things, hasn't she? Yes, and so has Tina Fey. Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, the, the insult underneath the question, you feel it, don't you? Absolutely. And sometimes it's much more blatant than than the asker thinks it is. That sort of got some legs and it went viral. And then I was approached by more than a few people, book agents and publishing companies who thought I had a book in me. Mm. And then I thought, you know, I had like a chapter list and I was like, oh, I'll write about, you know, hair and fashion and why I hate dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. To be fair, (laughs) let me just clarify. Sorry, can I I just clarify? You hate dinosaurs? It's not a hate of dinosaurs. 
dinosaur. Okay. I, it's, I miss Because I don't find dinosaurs impact my life that much day to day. Right, but maybe right. It's different. You don't think it does. Okay. <laughs> you don't know. You have no idea. Okay, no, please because explain. Help me, the help me. silent maybe, killer. Maybe this has been my problem all <laughs> Just, along. I guess it's a fear mm-hmm. and I process it through hate. Do you know the dinosaurs? That's gasoline. They're yes. everywhere. Fossil they do, fuels. Yes, it's yes. fossil fuels. They and do diamonds. In fact, and diamonds. Like, and diamonds. <laughs> and like, look, if, they're, if they live millions of years ago and they're powerful enough to make our cars go vroom, mm-hmm. nope, I don't trust it. I just wow. don't trust it. They can come back. Their DNA is everywhere. They can come back at any moment and mm-hmm. I'm not having it. Okay. I'm not having it. <laughs> but so I really thought that I would write, you know, funny things like that or like, you know, what I thought would be interesting. And then the first chapter in the book is about overhearing like a fashion icon call me a fat bitch a bunch of times and you know I found that a really arresting start actually because <laughs> and it's quite Ditto. yeah but it's quite an extraordinary moment actually in the book where it really like wow okay you have my attention I mean it made me gasp and wince just to myself <laughs> that story of, of the overhearing I don't want to give away too much but overhearing a conversation between someone you trust very much and another yeah. person that could be very hurtful but what's amazing is that you you actually turned you took control of it in some ways yes I was just as shocked because that's not what I meant to write at all mm-hmm. but I think that it just is a testament to to all of this the like speaking of dinosaurs all of the silent killers in mm-hmm. my emotions and in my mm-hmm. thoughts and in my psyche the things that I have no idea I have a problem with because I had a problem with them you know years ago when they happened and then mm-hmm. I covered it up immediately I used humor as a defense mechanism and so like I got cut and then I threw a bunch of you know band-aids on top of it mm-hmm. but that cut is still there yes there is so many remarkable things in the book but one of the things I love because that's something I'm quite interested in as well uh, is this thread of psychic predictions for your life that runs through the book <laughs> I love stuff like this. Mm -hmm. There have been some quite extraordinary predictions for you in your life from various people who said they were psychic. And um, (laughs) the first one comes when you're 10. Your father's second wife, who moved in with you, Tola, um, has a bit of news for you. Yes, Tola was my dad's second wife, Mm -hmm. who um, he married when I was five, and we did not find out about her until I was eight. Wow. (laughs) So, and it really ruined my dad's first marriage to my mom. (laughs) Because Tola lived in Senegal. She lived in Senegal. Which is where your father is from. Yes, my father's Senegalese, and they have different customs there. Also, Tola is his cousin. Yeah, and also a psychic. For hire. (laughs) For hire. And she, she, in in amongst this kind of quite dysfunctional (laughs) setup, she had some quite startling news for you. I would love it if you would share that particular story of Tola's psychic predictions for your extraordinary life. She did. Here's an excerpt. I see a big future for you, she finally said. Am I going to be a therapist? I excitedly asked. Tola didn't understand what I had asked, so she ignored it because, again, she was very African. And she said, you're going to be famous. Well, I didn't see that coming at all. Sure, I had wanted to be a comedian when I was a little younger, but I'd given up on that dream when I was eight. I'd also never envisioned being famous that way. I had mostly wanted to be a comedian so I could go to nightclubs and travel. As a girl comic, I asked. Again, Tola didn't understand my question. Again, very African. But she said, no, I don't know. But famous, yes. How? I asked. I don't know. But you're going to be famous, she reassured me. This wasn't adding up. 
By now, my mom was no longer a paraprofessional school teacher and was instead a prominent subway performer. Hold on, I'll tell you about this a little later. So she was making lots of fans down there under the subway, and Ahmed and I were sure that one day she'd be discovered. And then she'd be famous and on the radio, and we'd be rich. And Dad and his new stupid family, Tola included, would be sorry for making us move away and turning our old apartment into Little Senegal. And then Mom would adopt Abdul. Abdul's my brother. (laughs) Then we'd be happy. That was the plan. I thought that's what Tola would see. I wasn't sure how she'd come up with me being famous. Are you sure? She picked up the shells, shook them, and threw them in the bowl again. Yes, you're going to be famous, like Oprah. Wow. Even at the time, you were so young, you were only 10, but did it chime with something inside you? Did you did you have that sort of Madonna thing of what I think she said when she was a little girl, I'm going to have a special life? Did you feel like there was something inside you that just responded to that? I've always had trust issues, and that just seemed like some other stuff I couldn't trust. Like, this was also the woman that was, like, parading mm. around as my dad's cousin. I wonder why those trust wife. issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know. Nothing chimed to me. I immediately didn't think that she was right at mm-hmm. all. But over the course of the book, there's three or four other incidences of people who say they're psychic, strangers just stopping you in the streets, who don't even have any particular reason to stop you or lie or anything. Mm -mm. It just seems to be something about you that stops people. Yeah, it's always been like that. And honestly... I just assumed that telling someone that they were going to be famous was a popular psychic thing to say. Um, And Oprah comes up a lot too, doesn't she? Yes, my um, dad's wife said that I would be famous like Oprah. Mm -hmm. But I think that that was just like the most famous person she knew. Yes. You know, in the time. (laughs) And so, and then the other psychic said that they saw me talking to Oprah. They saw me being interviewed by Oprah. In fact, the, the last one told me what I was wearing. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I didn't realize until like way out till I was writing the book that she was really spot on about what really? I was wearing. Yeah. And in fact, she said first it's she said it's a green dress. No, it's gold. No, it's green. And I had the same exact it was a David Meister dress. It was the same exact dress, both in green and gold that I wore in different places and it was a choice of which one I would wear that day. Wow. So yeah. has that made you believe in psychics? I, one, believe that it's very easy to pretend to be a psychic. It's yes. very easy to to take advantage of people who are looking for answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe in real psychics. I do believe that there is a um, there's a gift that people have. And mm-hmm. I, I know psychics that are really, really incredible. And there are things that you can Google about me, but there's plenty that you cannot. Yeah. One of the other constants in your life, other than uh, random fleeting moments with psychics in the street, let's move on to one of your first in a series of objects that you've brought with you to share with the listeners, which is a photograph of your cat, Aaron. There he is. I'm sorry that the real Aaron can't be with us today. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> tell me about Aaron. How does Aaron fit into the story? So, first of all, those of you who cannot uh, see Aaron, which is most of you because you're listening to this, um, but also don't follow my Instagram, have no idea that Aaron, um, his na- his proper name mm-hmm. is Aaron Purr. Mm-hmm. Um, he's named after Aaron Burr, who shot Hamilton. Okay. Um, I also call him A. Aaron. I sometimes call him Lil Stupid. 
But Tell me about genius. the A Aaron. So What's A because that? that's, that's how I spell his name. Yeah. It's two A's, R O N, and it's also a sketch from Key and Pill, this comedy show, mm-hmm. where like this inner city teacher goes to like a normal, I guess, white school, and he mispronounces all the names as though we're a black student. It's a so, very, like, very funny. Sketch. It's is it not? Denache. Denache. Yeah. Denise. And I know, um, for, um, Jacqueline. Jacqueline. For Jacqueline. Jacqueline. Yeah, you done messed up now, A Aaron. <laughs> um, one of the kids is called Aaron with two A's right yes. so then the teacher can't quite compute this exactly and so that's one of Aaron's nicknames um, and it's one of the names he either decides or decides not to uh, answer to because he is very much a cat Honestly, he's just the smartest, the most handsome. He's the Idris Elba of cats. <laughs> well, you well, cannot tell me. Claim. Look at this. Look at this face. I can see it now. Look at that. He's so. He and he is knows. Very beautiful. He di- Yeah, and he knows he's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like I watch him check himself out in the mirror a lot. He likes TV. He mm-hmm. really. He loves RuPaul Drag Race. Oh, really? He does. He loves it. His <laughs> favorite is watching them in the mirror do their makeup. Wow. So he's got, he's a he's a cat of some taste. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, obviously. he's he's just like a real classy dude, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously his name and and he has some he has some background in comedy as do you. Uh, and you're <laughs> you uh, you're very funny yourself, obviously in person. You know, I mean, although you're you're very known for roles that are quite gritty and hard hitting, like in person you're extremely funny. So, uh, no, you are. Yeah, uh, and and the book is very funny too, and and you tell some very funny stories about your your father's slightly inadvertent sense of humour, uh, and also your father's response to your laugh, because you say in the book that your laugh seems to annoy your dad uh, to some extent, and and so just tell me because this made me laugh out loud. What what was your father's solution to your laugh? So I just like look, I just am genetically loud, <laughs> like like I'm just like a loud person, and my dad is very quiet like African who like went to architecture school mm-hmm. in France he's a class very man. dignified yes he's super dignified mm-hmm. and he hated my laugh because I I would cackle and I also would snort and so he would often threaten to glue my lip shut glue my ass shut mm-hmm. so that when I farted I would explode <laughs> Is that not the most hilarious thing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just imagine a little sort of gabaret puff of smoke. Yeah, just like, I would implode. Just like, there's a glitter in it. (laughs) Yes. It's really interesting because the picture you paint of your father is of this very quiet, dignified man, perhaps sort of somehow in America doesn't feel quite at home. There's Mm -hmm. a kind of slightly sort of friction about where he finds himself and going back to Senegal a lot and all of this sort of thing. Uh, And yet he comes out with something very strange and funny like and unexpected like that. It's so interesting. There are layers and layers and layers of my dad that I don't think I will ever get to just because there's no foundation of a relationship, really. Yeah, well, you have time. You have time. I do have time. And some people come to a relationship with their parents later in life. I think some people do find that. But what one of the things I really loved about the book is that he is a kind of slow burn character throughout it. And initially you sort of think, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> to his family, <laughs> to his wife, like what? And then sort of gradually, just quietly, there's just this sort of little recurrent thread going through the book as we discover more about him that you share with us as you've discovered more about him. And it's interesting to hear you talk that you feel that there probably is more to discover than even now. Yeah. Just not sure how to proceed with that, maybe. No, I'm not sure how, because like it's, everything's already awkward. Mm -hmm. Like things are quite awkward. 
And, you know, as brave a person as I am, awkwardness is still really hard to fight through. Have you found other ways, other outlets for being able to control hurt that you felt in the past? For example, I think, you know, some people, you use social media brilliantly. I've been, you know, <laughs> been reading your Twitter feeds. It's very, very funny. But also you seem to use it as a way to, you know, I think a lot of people do this to control the narrative a bit and to get in, what someone once told me, get, getting in front of the story. So if something's hurt you a bit, like you define the terms of, of it for yourself. Is that something you you use Twitter for as well a bit? The, yeah, and I, I use Twitter for it in a different way than I did before. Like when, like, I think I was in junior high or something when, like, look, I have darker skin than everyone else because I went to school in New York City and a lot of my classmates were, were Latino. Mm-hmm. And so I had really dark skin and I was really round. I was like a fat little girl with nappy hair and all these things. And I just sort of knew that at any turn anything could be made, I could be made fun of if mm-hmm. I, you know, did anything. Mm-hmm. And so I often would make the joke first. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn to not do that because I'm not a joke. I'm a gorgeous woman. Mm -hmm. But I'm I'm not a joke. But I do still get out ahead of things. There's a great chunk in the book where you talk about this and I would love to hear that bit if that's okay because you you define it and describe it so brilliantly. So let's hear about that now. Okay. I think Twitter is for saying dumb stuff as soon as it pops into your head. But a ton of my followers don't share my sense of humor. Do you even know how funny I'd be if my followers weren't so sensitive and unfunny? Whenever I post something that makes me laugh, I get a bunch of comments like, that's horrible. You're not better than anyone else. You need to start putting God first. You are so ungrateful. And I'm like, chill. I just think it'd be funny if this dog had a mustache. What's equally annoying is when I tell a joke about how terrible a person I am and some of my followers think I really feel that way and tweet their support as if I'm about to jump off the ledge of a building. Gabby, no, you are a queen. You are seriously the reason I get up out of bed every day. You are so important to me. I love you so much. If I were there with you, I'd hold you in my arms. Literally, those are tweets I get. (laughs) That's sweet. (laughs) Thanks. I was kidding. I realize I'm not really as bad as Hitler because I double-dipped a chip. What's the solution to a problem like this? I don't think there is a solution. There's hardly a problem. Not everyone in the world shares my sense of humor, and that's how the world works. People are different. If we were all the same, we'd all be making out with one another all the time, and we'd never get anything done. I understand that some people don't get the joke, so whenever I want to tweet something risky... I make a note of it instead in the notepad on my phone and I keep it. I don't tweet it. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a list of things that you think you want to tweet but feel it's unwise to tweet. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's very smart. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do enjoy writing and more than just like tweets, I was used to writing because I used to write a soap opera like when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that, please. Oh, that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I was around 16, I started writing a um, soap opera based on NSYNC. Honestly, Mm -hmm. it was fan fiction. Mm -hmm. And if we want to get real technical (laughs) about it, it was slash fan fiction. Okay, can you just clarify what you define what that is? So fan fiction is is (laughs) fiction that you write about someone or something that you're a fan of. Mm -hmm. Slash, the Mm -hmm. slash of it all means that there's porn involved. Okay. It's a little sexy, mm-hmm. which um, 
Look, honestly, I was 16. It was as sexy as a 16-year-old virgin can get. <laughs> even though you so laugh about it now and it is the stuff of teenagers' uh, notebooks, even at that stage, it's clearly a mechanism for some release for you. It, it, just the act of writing. Absolutely. Because here's the thing. I didn't know NSYNC. I wasn't writing about them, mm-hmm. but I was writing about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a teenager and I was in high school and high school was really, really rough. Did it almost feel like you had a kind of special secret superpower that you could go home and write yes. uh, and that nobody at school who was saying all this stuff to you knew about or and that, yeah. that was your private superpower? Absolutely. I would have a terrible day and I would go home and write myself a better day. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, the homework and all that stuff was a part of it where I didn't really have parents that cared about my education at all. So it was sort of like being unparented Mm -hmm. and having to parent myself. And I was like, well, I'm really smart and nobody cares. So I'm just going to go ahead and write these stories about Bone and J.C. Chazay. And and this brings me quite neatly to, uh, I'm assuming this isn't a real member because he's very tiny and has been standing very still. Uh, (laughs) But we have here... Uh, a, a doll. Uh, uh, could you tell us a little bit about this? Because I mean, it's like, what, why is this? What? Who is this? And why is he here? Okay. So at some point, Zinc had uh, marionette dolls. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it was out of the. It was in promotion of their second album, No Strings Attached. Okay. And I have here Lance. Now <laughs> Lance Bass, of course. Now I have every single doll, mm-hmm. but Lance is so important because he is actually the last one that I collected. Okay. And I just got him for my birthday because Which, my, yeah, my last now. birthday. Wow. Yeah, a little So you've taken that ago. long to took complete that long. the set. So this is like a, almost like a 20 year project. Exactly. Yeah. So do you, so you still have all, do you have the original set? I do. So you have them all? I do have them and all. And where, can, may I ask, um, where do they live? They are, they're all together and they live underneath all of the creepy fan fiction about them. <laughs> Definitely. Oh my goodness, there they all are. Yes, they live in... just showing me a great picture of where, yeah. they, where they are and they are all together. They all live together and what's above them are... The, you can see the backs of all the notebooks I wrote. Oh, yes. Yeah, and that's not even all of them. They also live amongst my wigs. Yes, and this, I think I was about to ask, I assume this is... Yeah, that's a mess That's one of your wigs in that's the one corner of my wigs. there. And, um, and is, that, is that a wig still in service? Is it, is um, it in action? Let's see, let me see. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's definitely still in action. Yeah, because that's a good-looking oh, yeah. one, yeah. I mean, that's something like... That's Donna Summer. It's... Oh, OK. You have names for them. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, I have to say, the whole section about you and your mother sort of bonding, but in a in a quiet way mm-hmm. over your hair, I really liked. And you made an observation as as she would do your hair at the weekend and it would take hours and hours and you'd be fidgeting and it's X, Y, Z. But at a certain point, she would sort of almost go into her own world and there's that lovely observation that you make that it was like you were observing her being an adult whilst being in the same room but almost as if you weren't in the room while she watched her TV programmes and did your hair. Your relationship with your mother is also a huge element of the book and and sometimes it's combative, sometimes it's very honest, uh, sometimes it seems a bit uncertain, but it always <laughs> seems very loving. It's a powerful relationship, I think. And even you talk about her extensively as an artist because she's an incredible singer and quite a well-known singer in her field, isn't she? Yes. And so she obviously had this whole other life that was very much beyond being a mum and that you were aware of. Singing is really, really important to her. Her voice is really, really important. Mm. And I could see where she wanted to go with it. Yes. And I could see her her disappointments. Mm. And I could see her triumphs. Mm-hmm. And I 
always knew it had nothing to do with me. Mm. Like, even as a child, like, I talk about how people, you know, if we had to be with her in the subway, mm. I'd be sitting doing my homework or, like, quietly reading. I was always reading something. But she sang in the subway, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, she sang in the subway. And that's the thing of being a subway singer, to go and... To, yeah, know. and it's, you know, no one's... She's not paid to do it. She has a schedule. There's an organization called Music Under New York that provides schedules and, you know, mm. and tells you where to be and, you know, how long to be there. But you're not paid. So she's mm-hmm. paid through tips, through people, you know, mm-hmm. liking her enough to give her money. It's quite interesting the way that your parents, although sometimes, as with anyone, it's a difficult relationship. But you obviously have this sort of quite this intellect and quirkiness that may be some partly to do with your father, but also this artistic drive from your mother who never gave up her dream. And you even say at one point um, you had seen that it's hard. It's it's a hard life to, to, to try to live an artistic dream. Absolutely. And that when you first were invited to audition for Precious or had started to think maybe I could be an actor, maybe some of these things that psychics have been saying to me may come true, that you squashed that down because you saw how hard it had been for your mother, however brilliantly talented she clearly is, to have lived her artistic dream. Absolutely. Watching my mom, like literally watching, sitting and watching her in the subway and watching people, you know, give her money. The three of us, my mother, my brother and I share a bunk bed Mm -hmm. and we share share every bit of these four walls because mm-hmm. we lived in because we're still really really goddamn poor yes and so it didn't i i saw that she was talented but i saw that it actually didn't make enough of an impact on our lives we were still struggling and i watched my mom do this and i knew as a child i wanted an office mm-hmm. i wanted to schedule i wanted to know exactly how many hours a day i was going to work mm-hmm. and what days it was going to work and i wanted to know exactly how much i'd be paid at the end of the week yes because i'm not i'm not going to struggle this way because I'm struggling right now. I see no reason to struggle as an adult. Yeah, and seeing how hard it is. Because it doesn't happen for everyone. In fact, it doesn't happen for most people. It doesn't happen for most. And, you know, part and parcel of your success now and your fame now is all of the pressures that come with that, that even when you are successful and famous, you talk about this brilliantly in the book, about being famous and broke. And the pressures of the red carpet and the pressures of having to achieve a certain look and that kind of whole world and everything. But one thing that made me laugh is that you've obviously been experimenting with your look, even though you've, you've finally, you say, got to a point where you You've clearly got it right and you love how you're dressed and you're working with people that you really like who get your style now and all that kind of thing. But your experiments with your look haven't always been hugely successful. And I just want to take you back to the moment where you and your friend <laughs> decided to go blonde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as a teenager. <laughs> uh, because it is a very, very funny bit of the book. Uh, and even though you've definitely got it sorted now, mm-hmm. uh, I think like most teenagers, you had a couple of disasters. So I just wondered if we could hear that just as a final clip of very- very funny section about <laughs> about being your attempt to go blonde. Okay. Yes, my friend and I decided to bleach our hair to go blonde. Mm-hmm. He went first. I think we bought and stole, I'm pretty sure we stole it, <laughs> some sort of bleach, bleaching paste from the beauty supply store and put it in his hair. Then Calrissian, by the way, this is my best friend at the time. His name was actually Calrissian. Okay. After Lando Calrissian from Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so the two of you together must have been constantly having to spell out your names to yeah, people. Yeah, 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 <laughs> definitely. He went by Cal and I was like, you sell out. <laughs> so, so then Calrissian put it in my hair and combed it down around my face, smoothing it in around my ears. About 20 minutes later, we both held our heads under the shower head in the bathroom and washed out the bleach. 
His hair was now bimbo blonde, exactly what he wanted. My hair was now orange, like the fruit. (laughs) My gray hair had turned a sickly yellow orange and had become even more wiry and untamable. But that wasn't the worst of it. Hey, so did you know that there's hair on your face so short and thin that you can't normally see it? I didn't. (laughs) Until that hair turned bright orange because the bleach my friend combed around my ears had dipped, had dripped down my face. When it was all rinsed out and blow dried, my entire head looked like I dipped it into a bag of Cheetos. I don't remember how my friends at school reacted to my new hairstyle. It's possible that I blocked it out, in which case, thank you, brain. I eventually had to shave my face. It's like, I think I was 15. (laughs) I eventually had to shave my face because the orange glow kept attracting moths. As for the orange hair on my head. Hey, so did you know that bleach and chlorine don't mix well? I didn't. I went swimming with my cousins in a pool and goodbye orange hair. Hello, green hair. Yes. I now had green hair. I don't remember what I did to get rid of the green hair. Thank you again, brain. I assume I just burned it down, collected the insurance money, and then moved to Canada. See, this is because, (laughs) see, like I said, like at the beginning of my life, I had braids, 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 and it looked all good, and my mom did it consistently. And then when I was around 11, I wanted to be like the other girls. I wanted to be like the Puerto Rican girls in my class, and I wanted to have straight hair. And so my mom permed it. And it was a disaster. And this this is part of the disastrous years. Obviously, as you've talked about in the book and as you've talked now, hair is a big deal for you and about feeling good and feeling confident and, and how you want it to look. Does that also translate to your acting work? Some people, I think some actors say they start with the shoes or something. You know, is, is hair a big deal in how you find the character? It can be. So you had uh, that tight little role for Precious and then Becky and Empire is blonde. And how, so, did you have any influence over that or do you just get told what to do? So when I was hired for Precious, my audition tape, the day before I meet the director, Lee Daniels, I have a like little bang mm-hmm. and my hair is like sort of like curled a little bit under and I had on a headband. Mm-hmm. And I did that so that I could look 16 because I was 24 at the time. Mm. And... um in real life, every now and then I would like do a bang and I'd get a fake ponytail. Nice. That's how I went down to work at the phone sexery every day. Mm-hmm. Can we just pause and just rewind for a second just to tell me about the, the phone sex? Because <laughs> you just threw oh, that yeah, in sorry. quite casually. And I did, want to, I did want to just spend, I don't want to spend, I don't want to dwell on it for too long, but it's a very funny and very actually, I, yeah, like I wasn't joking earlier on when I said it was quite inspiring because what you describe is this extraordinary office with women who are phone sex workers of which you become one and and the disparity between the reality of the people working there and what the men phoning up think or want to believe they're speaking to. And actually, yes. I found that quite moving. I know it's funny as well, but the best kind of comedy is often quite moving. But all these smart, independent women just making a living to support their families, Absolutely. pretending to be something that's culturally quite insulting to have oh, to pretend so to be. Um, and just just give us just a little bit of an insight. It's a great chapter so... in the book. <laughs> So, yes, I worked at a phone sex office. 
this. I was a talker for two months before I was promoted. Again, a super witty. A talker mean I actually took the phone sex call. So I'd be like, you'd call up and I'd be like, hi, this is Melody. Melody was my girl name. Like, I'm wearing panties or whatever. I actually wouldn't get to it. A good phone sex talker doesn't get to panties immediately. Okay. But because <laughs> as you explained in the book, you get paid as, for as long as they stay. Yes. So the idea is to defer the moment. Absolutely. Call it? The sooner you get them off, the sooner you get them off. Mm-hmm. I think we're all aware. <laughs> so, uh, yes. So the thing about, so the average caller for a phone sex company is a white man. Mm-hmm. Now, they are, you know, watching TV all day. They're working in offices with pretty young girls and stuff like that. And so who they have in mind when they call a phone sex company is that girl that they saw, mm-hmm. that they thought was pretty, that girl in that magazine, the girl in the TV show, the girl on the bus that they could never actually talk to. Mm-hmm. And so it was all of our jobs to be young white girls. That was the average call. Young white girl. Now, the average talker was a plus-size black woman. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, a hundred different phone services get, like, um, funneled into one one company. And so we have, like, horny housewife, college girl, barely legal, uh, submissive girl, dominant girl, and Latino girl, Asian girl. We also had black girl. My worst calls were always black girl calls. Right. Because, like, I would say hi. <laughs> and they're like, you're not black. I'm like, <laughs> I assure you, I am black. Yeah. And then they, they were like, well, do you like watermelon? And I was like, first of all, <laughs> like, it was racist. And I refuse, I just refuse to do that black thing for these, for these white white men who wanted to get off on it. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't, I just would not do it. Yes. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, it's a really exciting, interesting chapter. It's, a, it's, a, it's an insight into a world that I think people are curious about, but don't have a lot of direct experience of. Uh, and it's just, it's amazing the way you seem completely unscathed by it. And maybe that's a wrong assumption that I'm making, but the way you've come through all of these experiences that you talk about in the book and that may have broken some people. And, you know, the acting work is obviously spectacularly successful, but now you're not only in charge of your own story through writing, you're actually in charge of the story through directing. So you're, you've just directed your first film. I right? have. I directed a short film called The Tale of Four, mm-hmm. and it's an adaptation of a Nina Simone song called The Four Women. And um, directing was not something I thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It certainly was not something that I was sure I could do, but it's absolutely something I fell in love with. And I got to build the story. I got to be the architect of this story and, uh, you know, of these emotions and of these these characters. And and it was so fulfilling. You know what? One thing, like the thing about like writing and all these things and like my honesty is like I refuse to choke on my emotions. Mm-hmm. I refuse to not learn from every experience. Mm-hmm. And what this experience taught me was so much. I think it made me a better actor. Yes. I think it made me, you know, less judgmental and it made me more confident. But I think it's so interesting that you talk about confidence that way and obviously giving confidence to your actors, but also feeling confident yourself. And, you know, just a great way to round off this brilliant chat that we've had, because the whole thing started with you giving a talk about confidence. <laughs> uh, and, and there is an element of fake it till you make it in everyone's lives. But you've obviously, as you say, grown in confidence through directing and through writing. It's a very inspiring and exciting thing to be around, I think. So I wish you Thank so you. much success. I hope you write more. Uh, I loved your book. I hope you direct more. 
more, I hope you act more, I hope you just have more of everything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's just a fantastic book. This is just my face, try not to stab. Uh, and Gabourey Sidibe, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, thank and you. Um, have a good day. Thanks, you too, <laughs> Katie with a Y. <laughs> <laughs> The Ministry of Stories, in association with Penguin Random House, presents The World Was an Avocado, a collection of short stories written by children for children, created and recorded in partnership with the Penguin Random House audio team. All 35 stories will soon be available to listen to via ministryofstories.org, but for now, please enjoy the opening of Graveyard by Rysekey. One deadly night at the graveyard, a deep black shadow stood on a grave. The cruel shadow seemed to be shaped as an animal, Suddenly, there was a hell. Then, the black figure ran away. The black cloak fell off the animal. It was a wolf, or even a werewolf. The werewolf sank into its black and white grave that was named Emma. As Emma, the werewolf, sank, she was stomping and swinging her arms around. It was raining so much. I am so lonely. I wish I was alive. These amazing stories will be available week by week from the 23rd of May up until November. So visit ministryofstories.org for The World Was an Avocado.